Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the final class of the, what is it, 2014-2015 Mythgard Academy season. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. This is going to be, this is, of course, a fairly long book. Uh, it's going to be a fairly long class. And not only are we going to spend a while talking about this long and delightful book, um, but then I also want to talk about the miniseries adaptation at the end of it. So we're going to be going until probably around Christmas. So uh, welcome. I'm glad that you could join me, and I hope that that initial sh spiel didn't scare you away. Um, uh, <laughs> James said uh, uh, that I had him worried when I said final class, and he was wondering how he missed that many. Yeah, exactly. No, no. Uh, yeah, not quite like that, James. Um, uh, and uh, I'm not... Uh, uh, it would be quite unlike me to be uh, as far ahead as all that, of course. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's move right along. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah good. Uh, several people, uh, Neil Ottenstein, for instance, is... Uh, uh, opining uh, that the miniseries was a great adaptation. I'm excited. I've never seen it yet. Um, I've been saving myself until I actually finished reading the book, which I only just did quite recently. So uh, I'm now ready to go and uh, see the miniseries, but I haven't yet. Um, so um, I'm, I'm excited. I'll be excited to talk about it. I'm uh, excited to watch it. Um, this is going to be a really fun class experience on the whole, because this is the very first time in the history of the Mythgard Academy that we're... Um, doing a book that I didn't know at all. I'd never read it. I just finished reading it for the first time. Um, I'll be reading it for the second time as we go through uh, together. Uh, so this is all sort of a voyage of discovery for me, and I'll be very interested. I, you know, I, I, am, I know for a fact that uh, many of you who are here uh, with me this evening have read it more times than I have or more familiar with the book than I am. So I, I'm delighted to hear your thoughts and your uh, um you know, your input as we go. Of course, I'm always interested in hearing your thoughts and input as we go along, but I shall value them ever the more this time because uh, I, I uh, am much more keenly aware of my ignorance. Not that I'm necessarily more ignorant. I'm just more keenly aware of my ignorance, which is a, which is a significant difference. Uh, arguably, I should more often be aware <laughs> of my own ignorance. But anyway, um, let's... Um, uh, let's. Uh, I can see several of you are really interested to talk about the miniseries. Of course, that was a much more recent event, so I know uh, uh, you know it's something that uh, many of you have sort of very recently, uh, uh, recently on your minds. Uh, so I can see several people wanting to kick off that discussion. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, uh, um, I'm gonna try to uh, hold off because again, I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment on it. We'll have, we'll have plenty of time. I've, I'm not made any attempt to just squeeze like the whole miniseries into one class. I think I scheduled three classes um, and even possibly left open the um, the uh, possibility of the of, of the new ones. So um, anyway, yeah, and for those of you who are looking, I I have to, the uh, miniseries is available now. I mean, you have to purchase it, but it's available on uh, like uh, Amazon Instant Video and um, uh, on uh, through iTunes and uh, several other places, so it is uh, generally available now. So, um, anyway, okay, yeah, I know, no, my record on uh, holding off <laughs> and getting back to things later on is maybe a little bit sketchy, but I've, I've knowing, knowing that I am uh, uh, prone to that kind of thing, I have. It's one of the reasons why I have scheduled a luxurious number of 
uh, sessions uh, for this particular class, which seems only fitting uh, uh, to to do a uh, fast-paced and abbreviated discussion of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell would seem wholly out of keeping with the spirit of that book. So, um, anyway, I've scheduled myself extra time. We should be okay, I'm hoping. So, anyway, we'll see. But, of course, we shan't be if I don't uh, move things along now. So, let's do that. Uh, Before we start, as always, a couple quick announcements, because we've got some really exciting things coming up. One is one that I've mentioned before uh, in uh, previous, but we're getting closer to it now. We're only a couple weeks away now, and, of course, I'm referring to uh, our regional event in the Mid-Atlantic region. My apologies to people who are further away, but many of you are in the Mid-Atlantic region and can make it in uh, for what we affectionately call Midmoot, or more officially the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, um, which is going to be held on Saturday, October 3rd at the University of Maryland. Um, I am, uh, uh, I, I can't wait to meet, I know many of you have signed up, I can't wait to be able to meet many of you in person for the first time, and uh, several of you, of course, I, whom I have met before at previous conferences, I'm looking forward to seeing again. Um, Berlin Flieger, the editor of the uh, new of Tolkien's the new Tolkien book, Coolervo, is coming out. Uh, so uh, you know we'll get a chance to hear from Dr. Flieger about her experience editing Coolervo. People will be able to ask her questions, both sort of about that experience as well as about uh, the book itself. So um, anyway, that 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 will be a, that will be a really uh, a really great opportunity. So um, so anyway, so that's that's again that's October third uh, to sign up. Go to MythGuard.org, uh, and then over on the Events tab, <clears throat> uh, you will find a, a link to uh, uh, at the top to uh, to Midmoot to the Mid Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium. Uh, so please do join us if you can. Um, there's a great crowd coming already. We uh, have over 50 people uh, uh, planning to come. Uh, there's likely to be more here in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, but anyway, all will be welcome. It should be it should be great fun. Um, Another announcement, and this is a new thing uh, that is coming up very soon. Um, we are, it's, it's getting to be fall, the leaves are changing on the trees, and that means it's time for the annual Signum and Mythgard fundraiser. Um, we have a lot of really awesome events planned this year. I am super excited for this year's, uh, this year's fundraising uh, event. We're going to have an initial sort of launch event on Hobbit Day. Hobbit Day is the you know the on Bilbo and Frodo's birthday um, is sort of uh, sort of we seems like the fitting day to begin celebrating our own birthday. Um, it's always in, in the fall uh, when Mythgard was born, and so we um, we like to celebrate it then too. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing a bunch of things. But anyway, on that day, on on on, on Hobbit Days at no, at the, this same time, nine thirty p.m. Eastern time, uh, we're going to be having a launch event. We're going to be doing uh, Tolkien readings and uh, a, a, a trivia contest. I, th- I think I've heard rumors that there's going to be actual prizes uh, for the Tolkien trivia contest, and uh, we're going to be uh, and and sort of telling you more about what to expect uh, over the course of the next. Six weeks. So our our fundraiser our fundraising campaign is going to be running from to from 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 Hobbit Day from the twenty second through Halloween. So uh, we have a bunch of uh, special events uh, and including, by the way, um, sort of celebrating the Mythgard Academy. I'm going to be doing two bonus. Mythgard Academy sessions, one in the middle uh, of the uh, of the fundraiser, and then the second uh, during our traditional webathon at the end of the at the end of the the, the fundraising campaign. 
uh, so anyway, that's it's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be really. I'm going to do like two. And so the the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Neural class is going to go on uninterrupted. Um, but in addition to that, we're also I'm going to do a, a couple sort of one shot sessions on shorter works that uh, we, um, um, you know, that we wouldn't normally elect because they're really short. Uh, so I'm going to do a short Tolkien work, uh, and I'm going to do. I'm going to do uh, something else. I'm I'm leaning towards doing something quite adventurous. That is another thing that's fairly new to me, though very much more familiar to many of you than it has been for me, and to which I'm very new. Uh, and that is, I think I, I, I really want to do a Mythgard Academy session on a Doctor Who episode. I've been continuing to watch Doctor Who for the first time over the over this past year, uh, and I've been loving it. I'm in season seven now of the new of you know the the rebooted series, and uh, I've been. Um, uh, I've been really enthusiastic about it, uh, so I, um, I am thinking of. Uh, uh, I haven't decided yet exactly which. We're going to do one. We're going to do a close look at one episode, um, and uh, I'm going to. And then, and I'm probably going to also be welcoming in some special guests to uh, talk about the, uh, that um, episode with me. So anyway. It's gonna be it's gonna be really fun. Um, I've yeah I've been having a great time. I've uh, yeah Cat you know um, the transition to Matt Smith from David Tennant has been made so much easier for me by the fact that I just love Amy Pond. Uh, you know the uh, the addition of Amy Pond made that transition uh, so much smoother for me. Uh, so anyway I'm 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 uh, much smoother. You know I was, I, I, I was on record last year saying I, I had a hard time with my transition from Christopher Eccleston to David Tennant, but. Anyway, we're gonna um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, great fun doing that. So that that'll be a special session we'll do in the middle of the sometime in the middle of October. Um, we'll be we'll be uh, uh, laying out the full exact schedule for you. Um, and for those of you who didn't hear, we announced this actually at the Silmarillion Film Festival. No, film Festival, Silmarillion Film Project. It's not quite a festival yet. <laughs> you know, every episode is like a party. Um, but anyway, uh, that uh, we're also going to be doing uh, the Silmarillion Film um, uh, not Festival Project team is going to be interviewing uh, Jim Butcher, one of my favorite contemporary fantasy writers. Um, uh, so he's going to be joining us live for a discussion of adaptation and uh, and uh, Tolkien and uh, you know and and his own work. So uh, I'm really excited about that. So anyway, lots of fun events that are going to be going on. We're going to be doing a fiction contest. So much stuff. So to learn more about and the schedule of all these events, it's not yet up on the website. That that will be coming very soon. This is advanced warning uh, for these things. Um, but uh, but anyway, so do plan to come to that Tuesday event, not only for the, the fun of the Tuesday event itself, uh, but also to learn more about what's going to be happening this is the uh, the the I just sent in the uh, chat there the uh, link for the Tuesday night session. I hope you'll be able to uh, uh, to to join us. So, okay, very good. Anyway, let's um, let's talk about Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell now. Um, okay, so my first sort of a, fir- a few general comments first. I I, mean, I have to say I find this book um, to be altogether remarkable. I absolutely love the depth of the subcreation that it undertakes. Um, the f- I'm a you know and, and you know part of this is like the you know sort of I you know I was raised by Tolkien right so um, that's I think part of what really informs this. But I am just a sucker for a book which 
actually encodes its own sort of subcreation within the shape of the text as well. That is to say, it's not just sort of a modern narrator who's telling us a good story and having me emerge, immerse myself imaginatively in a secondary world. That's great. Um, but when, you know, the kind of thing that Tolkien does with sort of explaining how different texts and versions of the story come down to us and everything, I've always been a sucker for that kind of thing. Again, I, you know, I love Tolkien. I, I really love that kind of thing. So the way in which uh, Clark has managed to not just tell a story, you know, a sort of a, a, a historical fantasy novel that takes place during the Regency, but to sort of encode that entire um, Regency era within the text itself, um, that is, within the, 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 the style uh, and shape of the storytelling itself, is really, really good and very well done. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know how many of you, um, I don't know how many of you, you know, are fans of uh, 19th century literature. I am a huge fan of 19th century liter literature. Love 19th century uh, Brit lit. Uh, huge Jane Austen fan. Um, I like Dickens. I like um, some Dickens. I like better than others. Some bar parts of Dickens I like better than others. Um, but uh, but Austen, I'm a huge fan of. Um, really like George Eliot too, but, um, and, and 18th century literature, 18th century, the much maligned 18th century, uh, literature, I find that my own sense of humor, uh, uh, is, is, is extremely compatible, uh, with a lot of 18th century, uh, comedy in particular. Uh, I, I just, I, I can't read, uh, Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern without just collapsing into giggles, uh, very frequently. Um, Anyway, I love 18th and 19th century literature, and so to me, I, you know, I found the way that she... Um, it's not just about the prose style, right? I mean, it's, it, 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 the, the prose style is done well. Um, I find it very believable. Again, from, you know, I've just been uh, immersed in you know, my own... Um, the, my own pleasure reading lately. I've been doing... I decided about a year ago that it had been too long since I'd read the 18th century, so I decided to go back and sort of reread a whole big pile of 18th century novels that I hadn't read in many years, and, and reading some that I'd never read at all before. Um, so I've just been reading Fanny Burney for the first time recently. I'm, I'm about halfway through Cecilia. And um, so I, you know, I've, I've just sort of been in that mode, and so turning from those books to, uh, to Susanna Clark was... Um, very natural. I mean, it's I, she does a remarkably good job. Um, I find, my own experience anyway, is that I don't ever feel like I am reading the work of somebody who is constantly attempting to sound like a 19th century novelist. I find the sound... Um, I, I, I find the sound... Uh, of this text, very, very convincing. Let me just, I, you know, there are so many examples that I could point to. Uh, this is one that kind of struck me in particular. Um, uh, but anyway, this is, of course, the letter uh, that uh, Mr. Norrell receives when after he arrives in London. I know it is very shocking that I should write to you upon no acquaintance whatsoever, and no doubt you say to yourself, who is this impertinent creature? I did not know there was such a person in existence, and consider me shockingly bold, etc., etc., but Drawlight is a dear friend of mine, and assures me that you are the sweetest-natured creature in the world, and will not mind it. 
I am most impatient for the pleasure of your acquaintance, and would consider it the greatest honor in the world if you would consent to give us the pleasure of your company at an evening party on Thursday Sennight. Do not let the apprehension of meeting with a crowd prevent you from coming. I detest a crowd of all things, and only my most intimate friends will be invited to meet you. Um, I, I just I, I quote this as just merely one out of hundreds of possible examples of passages where I just I find the um, the the particular turns of phrase that are so that I find so um, uh, so so indicative so typical of this period just kind of roll off really naturally. Um, I detest a crowd of all things, uh, for instance. Really, really small touches. Um, uh, the the uh, the spelling, like the spelling of shocking and creature, uh, uh, you know, and the way that those come off in this particular, uh, frankly, ill-bred letter, um, it's uh, it's just um, just wonderful. Um, so anyway, I um, uh, yeah yeah very good. Nancy Fosberg says this really gets both the nineteenth-century feel and the voice of the character. Absolutely, um, it's it's not just that this sounds like a nineteenth-century novel. This sounds like a very recognizable kind of character from a nineteenth-century novel. We we you know we we don't ever need to meet her again. We we know this person. I've, I you know I've 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 read of this person many times before. Um, it's it's wonderful. I, I, so I I find the experience of immersion within this secondary world um, to be of a remarkably thoroughgoing nature, because again, it's not just that the story is well told. It's not just that I can you know invest in the characters. It is that the entire manner of the storytelling itself is an integral part of the storytelling, and that is super cool. But it's more than just the prose style. Right? It's not just the, 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 the vocabulary and the syntax and all those things, but even, and to me, much more remarkably, the whole pace and structure of the story. It feels like reading a 19th century novel. Um, you know, there many people, as I was reading Jonathan Norm, Mr. Strange, I would occasionally, uh, I did it again. Uh, I made that mistake the very first time I read the title of this book. I called it Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Strange. I think mostly because before I'd ever read the book in my imagination, the name Mr. Strange seemed to me really cool. So I kind of, my imagination kind of latched onto that. But of course it was wrong. Um, and I keep, I find myself still misspeaking and saying that, even though I know perfectly well what the title should be now that I have, you know, met the characters and read the whole story. So anyway, my apologies if, uh, uh, if my imagination misspeaks there, but anyhow, okay. So, um, as I was, you know, so I've been occasionally tweeting, uh, you know, that I've been reading it and everything, and you know, some, you know, many people, of course, are very enthusiastic about it, but uh, you know, many people are like, you know, I read that and really couldn't get into it, and but I found that the complaints that most people were making, that at least that I was hearing are the kinds of complaints that modern readers always make of 19th century novels. Like, it's really slow moving. I mean, this plot, I mean, just the development of the plot is so glacial. And it's like, I know, isn't it delightful? I mean, yeah, that's just how 19th century novels go. And, you know, in, in, um, in, in part, I mean, this is a, this is a huge and grotesque generality, but, um, but, you know, one of the things that has always struck me when reading 18th and 19th century novels, the 
20th century novel, you know, modern novels especially, there's this, um, I don't know, I feel like there's always present the, what we dem- what we want in a book, what we consider a good book. I mean, you think about, uh, think about the kind of compliments that 21st century people pay to good novels, right? They'll say things like, it was a real page turner, I couldn't put it down, right? That's what we look for in a book, something that, that grips us and won't let us go, and that we just lose track of time and we, we flip through until like we've just, you know, devoured the book in a surprisingly short sitting, right? Um, because we just couldn't drag ourselves out of it, right? That's the... Um, uh, that's the experience that many people... I mean, for instance, that was... I mean, I remember hearing people talk like that um, back in the day when the Harry Potter novels were being published. J.K. Rowling is wonderful at that kind of narrative drive um, and, uh, you know, succeeded in creating that effect for many, many, many people, and that's great. I mean, that's that's a really cool thing in a book, that it engages you in that particular way. However, reading 18th and 19th century literature, it strikes me that that is a very... is not really on the radar screen, either of 19th century writers or 19th century readers. Um, They didn't want to devour books at a gulp. They wanted to linger over them, and they wanted them to last a very long time. Remember, there's no TV, right? This is all we have. Um, You know, it's either this, or cards, which is a little bit scandalous, possibly, or sitting and talking to each other. I mean, we just, we don't have that much in the way of entertainment, right? It's, 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 you know, when you're done with the book, it's back to the embroidery, right? So we want books to last for a really long time. I think this is one of the reasons why we get these delightfully unhurried stories that unfold in these slow, gradual ways, which enable us to, um, you know, sort of immerse ourselves in the lives of minor characters and the descriptions of landscapes and things as we walk through and, you know, these sort of side plots which aren't really completely necessary, you know, and um, in... uh, in my mind, uh, something like uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch is one of the sort of epitomes of this sort of style. It's an enormously long book, um, and the pl- it's not that there is not a compelling plot and it gets kind of exciting at the end, but, I mean, it's not about, like, this... It's not a page-turner. It's not designed to be a page-turner, right? It's just, it, 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 in, it allows you to immerse yourself and invest yourself in the lives of numerous people, and you just sort of follow them through these stages of their lives, and all the stories kind of come together, but it takes a long time getting there. Um, and this, um, uh, this, uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm exactly, and books are $400 each, exactly. Books are really expensive. Um, st- I mean, we're, we're post-printing press now, so I have little sympathy uh, for the cost of books. Being a medievalist, I have little sympathy for the cost of any books post-printing press. But yes, they still are more expensive. Um, uh, now, this, you know, comparatively, the cost of a book compared to other things you would spend money on was much higher than it is nowadays uh, in our world, where, you know, you can now pick up... Uh, oh, and by the way, my page numbers are from the paperback edition, which is what I have, um, and which cost, you know what the same as a like a fast food value meal so um so yeah no that 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 is a factor too and books would 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 sort of circulate and be handed around and things um anyway i um and the footnotes yes of course the footnotes um i i get just 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 wonderful uh, and the way that the the footnotes um and there's such a marvelous touch um giving us the impression uh, notice that there's there's never really 
Clark doesn't go the final step to actually give us um, the uh, the an actual historical explanation for the book that we're holding in our hands, right? Uh, like, it would be really... I mean, I, I, I kind of think it would be sort of the final Tolkienian touch to, like, discover that the book that you were reading was written by John Segundus, right? Um, it's it's We get quotations from, you know, The Life of Jonathan Strange written by John Segundus, but we don't... Uh, you know, it, th- there's no actual explanation for the origin of the book that we're holding in our hands. And yet it's pretty clear that the book that we're holding in our hands, again, from all the footnotes especially, the book that we're holding in our hands is clearly a book about magic. Um, just as the, the kinds of, just like the kinds of books that the Society of York Magicians collect and read, right? Not a book of magic, of course, but a book about magic. Um, considering, concerning which we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later on. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's so so the footnotes, uh, you know, are, again, they I I find the footnotes more effective, you know, have a greater impact in um, immersing me within that secondary world, this very specific secondary world of this text, uh, than almost any other single touch. So, um, uh, yeah, interesting, Matthew. I hadn't noticed that, uh, Matthew. Hershenroder says, uh, I like how both Strange and Norrell are first introduced in footnotes. That's interesting, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, very good. Yeah, uh, David Baxter's uh, saying, aren't there a bunch of footnotes that imply that we're reading about what actually happened and all the printed, uh, and, and all the, uh, the, the, the printed press is lacking in detail? Yeah, well, David, what it sounds like is that this is the work of a later historical magician. Um, I'm thinking in particular, and this is jumping ahead, of course, we won't go into too much detail yet, but um, the uh, the black letters, right? Those uh, the, the chapter in which the letters which Jonathan Strange wrote from Venice uh, uh, back to his brother-in-law. You remember those bits? And there's those the, there are those footnotes that explain the complicated textual history there, right? How you know the, the how the black letters were published, and how you know later on um, it was claimed that they had been altered um, by uh, Norrell and Lascelles. Um, you know, so that, that, that there are those kinds of things which do sort of discuss the story from a sort of a higher level, but they're from the higher level, like a historical level. Like this is like what we're reading is something that was compiled maybe, you know, 30 to 50 years after the fact. So it's referring to these things historically. And it's, you know, the, whoever it is, whatever, you know, wh- whoever is the excellent uh, author who has compiled all this has done their research, right? So they're able to explain, here's, here's the real story about what happened. So there's some distance there. Um, uh, but... But again, to me, it doesn't. It doesn't to me at all uh, break the secondary, uh, you know, sort of break the frame. Uh, if any, you know, really, quite the opposite. It, um, I find that it that it uh, that it enhances it. Um, and Carita, yeah, I love the fact that those books of magic. Um, oh, sorry, those books about magic, again, of which this seems to be one of those books about magic, are all described as being long and dull, right? It's like the anticipation of the criticism that would be made of this book by many uh, is actually encoded in. I, I, I find that a delightfully uh, uh, sort of um, sort of 
both sort of self-deprecating kind of twist at uh, because I mean she's got to know right she's got to know when she writes this that there are many many readers who are going to find the book long and dull all right I mean, she's got to know that um, I can't imagine that that is a criticism that took her by surprise um, but uh, anyway anyway um, yeah Janice says uh, this is it's more a book about magicians than a book about magic well yeah but Again, even there, that's what that's what the, most of those books about magic seem to be, right? I mean, whenever anybody quotes or refers to those books, they're usually telling. Remember, they're you know, like when Mr. Norrell starts spouting off about this in a really dull, boring way. Um, that uh, you know, he's he's sort of quoting these stories about oh, and then. Um, you know, and and then uh, you know, uh, uh, Ralph Stokesy did this and that, and you know, basically just telling stories of the lives of these, you know, some more or less probable or plausible stories of the lives of those magicians. But uh, but yeah, so I mean, that's in a sense what we're getting. Not that many of the books in the libraries of uh, you know the Society of York Magicians are necessarily sort of in novel form like this. But again, it's not it's not out of keeping with what we hear. Uh, from them. Though, again, the book doesn't make any claim to actually be one of those things, right? It doesn't actually give us what the provenance of the book itself is from. Um, uh, In this way, it actually kind of it it reminds me um, uh, it reminds me of Dune, to some extent, and all of those epitaphs by the Princess Irulan, um, which really engage us with the text in this sort of really intriguingly metatextual way, um, I find the effect of the footnotes not to be the same, um, because, of course, the the fact that Princess Irulan herself is sort of not only close to the story herself, but also the fact that she's the one writing the epitaphs all along also gives us a certain insight into, you know, and the fact that she's talking about the things that are going to be happening right after the outcome of the story, right? The way that it does a time thing with us. Um, that's different, obviously. Um, but but still that general effect of, uh, of, of inviting us without claiming actual clear authorship, um, you know, that this is the narrative voice that we're hearing, yet invites us to sort of think it through um, in those in those ways. Um, yeah, yeah. And Sharon, I agree. Sharon says it seems like Clark was almost challenging the reader to pace themselves by beginning with the most dull and ponderous character of Mr. Norrell. Um, yes, yes, it does. It's it is almost like a test of our own stamina, right? If we can't handle Mr. Norrell at the beginning, we really it's we shouldn't go on, right? It's time. It's time. It's time to find a new book. I think. Um, he is deliciously described, Kristen. I absolutely agree. Um, but again, if you find the descriptions of Mr. Norrell delicious, you've passed the test, right? I, I, that's 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 good, right? But if you're if you're sitting there responding like one of Mr. Lo- one of uh, Mr. Norrell's interlocutors, right, and sitting there thinking like, I love that passage. I didn't include it among my passages for tonight, which eventually I'm going to get to more of. Um, uh, but anyway, I love that passage where where Mr. Norrell explains about how he made all of the stones of of the York Cathedral speak, and uh, and Mr. and uh, Sir Walter Pole, who's listening to it. Um, 
uh, is so bored hearing him describe the thing that you know, basically somehow Mr. Norrell contrived to to uh, to give Sir Walter Pole the impression that it was a terribly dreary undertaking and that he was really fortunate, more fortunate than otherwise to have uh, to have missed it. Um, anyway, I, I think that's um, that's really uh, that's really wonderful. So anyway, okay. Um, one other th- point I wanted to make about sort of the setting and approach of the book before before we move on, is there is there are moments in which this book has touches of distance from nineteenth century culture that you wouldn't get in an actual authentic nineteenth century work, um, and those I found uh, to be b- not only uh, effective but also really interesting. Let me look at one uh, example of what I was talking about. This is, of course, right after Mr. Norrell's arrival in London. And how to describe a London party. Candles and lusters of cut glass are placed everywhere about the house in dazzling profusion. Elegant mirrors triple and quadruple the light until night outshines day. Many, uh, many colored hothouse fruits are piled up in stately pyramids upon white cloth tables. Divine creatures, resplendent with jewels, go about the room in pairs, arm in arm, admired by all who see them. Yet the heat is overpowering, the pressure and noise almost as bad. There is nowhere to sit and scarce anywhere to stand. You may see your dearest friend in, an, in another part of the room. You may have a world of things to tell him, but how in the world will you ever reach him? If you are fortunate, then perhaps you will discover him later in the crush and shake his hand as you are both hurried past each other. Surrounded by cross, hot strangers, your chance of rational conversation is equal to what it would be in an African desert. Your only wish is to preserve your favorite gown from the worst ravages of the crowd. Everybody complains of the heat and the suffocation. Everybody declares it to be entirely insufferable. But but if it is all misery for the guests, then what of the wretchedness of those who have not been invited? Our sufferings are nothing to theirs, and we may tell each other tomorrow that it was a delightful party. Um... Again, the thing that strikes me about this passage is, again, as I said, this is a passage, you wouldn't see a passage exactly like this. Um, there are some moments, in fact, I was actually reminded when I was reading this of a passage in Cecilia by Fanny Burney, which I had just been reading. Um, and it's not it's not in the narrator's voice like this, it's in the character's voice, um, where the characters who are, you know, the character who is sort of complaining about parties voices many of these exact objections uh, to parties. Um, so, but again, many of these actual elements of description from the narrator's point of view are never given in 19th century novels because they take them for granted, right? Like the business about the candles. A modern audience needs to know this, right? How exactly is it going to be lit without, um, you know, without, I mean, do they use gas? They don't have electricity. Do they use gas lamps? How do they do this? So the, uh, the, the, the picturing all of the candles and the mirrors and things helps the modern reader more accurately to picture this. And whereas, again, very few descriptions of that, unless there's something particularly striking about how it's done in a particular party. Again, actually, I'm thinking of another, uh, The I'm thinking, if you know Cecilia by Fanny Byrne, I'm thinking of the Masquerade Ball and the descriptions there. We do get some elements of that, again, because it's it's a particularly special and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and well, fabulous party. Um, but again, there is, so there is a kind of distance that is placed between us and the setting to some extent here by the mere fact that the author is 
sort of somewhat more laboriously than usual, explaining all of these things which normally would not have to be explained to uh, an actual 19th century reader by a 19th century novelist. But, um, but there's an in, there's an element here which I find, again, you know, it, it would be easy to chalk up passages like this to, like, well, this is sort of inescapable, you know, there's some... Uh, some ways in which you have to cater to modern readers who don't really know these things, and they're not going to be able to accurately imagine it if you don't actually tell them how did they, in fact, light, uh, you know, parties at this time, um, uh, you know, n- nighttime parties. But, um, uh, but there's another element here, or rather this touches on another element of the book which I find so interesting, and that is, of course, it's not just that we're getting this, I find, very convincingly authentic uh, 19th century novel experience, but um, there are variations from that history, right? This is a fictional history, which is based closely on, uh, you know, Regency England, but it's not exactly Regency England, and there are some significant differences, and some of those are introduced in exactly passages like this. I'm thinking, for instance, of the description about why the York Cathedral is not called a minster, uh, and why it's called a cathedral instead. Um, well, of course, the York Cathedral is, in fact, called a minster in the real world. The York Minster is very famously called the York Minster, uh, and if you go uh, as an American tourist and accidentally call it the York Cathedral, you will receive patronizing and disapproving looks uh, from the locals. I may or may not be able to speak from experience on that particular point. But um, but anyway, in this story, instead, we have that whole thing uh, kind of turned on its head and an explanation of why it was called, they, they pitched the name Minstrel and called it a cathedral in order to distinguish it from others, whereas now, uh, in the real world, of course, it's exactly the opposite. It's called the York Minster, um, and there seems to be a certain amount of pride taken in insisting that it's a minster, not a cathedral, because it differentiates it from all the other cathedrals in England. So uh, the way that that is kind of explained uh, from the outside in order to kind of turn it... Um, uh, to, to, to sort of turn it on its head is uh, I, again I, I, I really really loved uh, that that very small moment but um, but again it's to me very indicative of the way in which some of the really subtle ways in which this world has been altered because this is an alternative history right it's very close to many things but some things need explanation, and would need explanation, even for someone who did know actual Regency England, because it's not, uh, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't your great, 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 great grandfather's Regency England. Um, anyway, so if you like this sort of thing, you know, this book is a wonderful experience, at least I certainly have, um, uh, have, have found it so. Um, yeah, uh, Tripp uh, makes a really interesting point. So, you know, on the subject of uh, description like this, and how I was saying it would be unnecessary for an actual nineteenth-century person. Tripp says, "What? What about an American audience or one of the lower classes of the time period? Um, why would an English novelist uh, <laughs> care what an American audience would say? Uh, would they even be aware? I mean." So, 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 so the colonists were reading this book, right? Um, why should they even notice? Um, but no, but, but, but really, actually, the, the way in which the narrative is, and this is so, again, very typical of, um, of so much, uh, British literature, 
um, so sort of invested in uh, you know in 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 the the gentle class of uh, of English society. Um, it is the sort of the basic premise, uh, you know. Even to some extent, you know, think about the way in which uh, the question of is it possible to be a gentleman and a magician? It's it's a major question in these first six chapters, right? Well, not the first three so much, but the you know, four, five, and six as we get to Mr. Norrell and his going to, to, to London. It's a major question, right? Um, but that whole question is clearly framed within the context of, um, you know, this is um, from the point of view of, you know, one person of the gentle class speaking to another person of the uh, uh, of the gentle class. So, um, so anyway, I, I, I do think uh, it seems to me unlikely um, that uh, that a, a, an actual, an authentic 19th century author would have thought too much about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good, okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about English magic. Um, thinking, having thought a good bit about how this does I'm thinking here of uh, of uh, sort of Plato's terms of the same and the different, uh, how this establishes a, a sameness, right? It establishes a frame. Um, again, for people familiar with the time period, um, a great sense of familiarity. Um, again, that certainly was my experience, the sense of being on very familiar ground in reading this story and this kind of story. But of course, at the same time that that is established, we get different established too, right? That this world is not exactly the same as the one with which we are familiar. So let's look at the, with that in mind, let's look at the opening couple paragraphs and think about what exactly this establishes. How does this, again, this is our introduction, our first introduction to the story. What kind of effect does this have in establishing the secondary world into which we are uh, entering here at the beginning of the book? Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians, they met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say, they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But, with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. Nancy, yes, the letdown between the first sentence and the second sentence is delightful, right? Um, first sentence, right? Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. If you take that entirely out of context, this could be any... It sounds fairy tale like right? It's not quite once upon a time, but it's almost once upon a time, right? Some years ago, there was in the city of York... Um, and even th- that syntax, right? Um, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. Now, society sounds kind of not fairy tale like right? But apart from the word society... Um, if you replace the word society with maybe council or something, right? Um, some years ago, there was in the city of York a council of magicians, right? Doesn't that sound like that could be a fairy tale or something? Some kind of, you know. Um, but then the second sentence, Nancy, as you say, is such a, a crashing shift in 
register, tone, direction. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. Um, the quantity of things that we are being asked to take in in these two sentences I find really amazing. Um, okay, so let's summarize. Um, what have we learned? What have we learned from these first two sentences? Just, just, just think about those first two sentences for a minute. What have we learned? Um, let's see if we can if we can list the things that we've learned. Um, okay. Um, I suggest, okay, so there are magicians. Okay, um, we did, England. England had magic. Patrick, yes, that's uh, that's an important point. Uh, we have Brian Yoder says they sound like a book club, uh, indeed. Um, but I think, yeah, Patrick, you have you have uh, you have stated very concisely one of the really cool things, right? England had magic. That's a great way of saying it, Patrick. Um, so, okay, taking apart what Patrick said, because we we have to process them sort of separately, right? On the one hand. There's magic in England. Magic is associated. Magic is a real thing, and it's in some sense associated with England. English magic is a phrase, right? There is a specific subset of magic which is peculiarly English, right? That's one of the things that we learn here. And yet, Patrick, as you say, it's past tense, right? Um, England had magic. It doesn't seem to have it. Anymore, um, yeah, good. John, Me- uh, John M- M- Moline says uh, England has a defunct history of magic, or a history of, of now defunct magic. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Kristen, that the, this sort of uh, sort of mind-bending idea of associating dullness with magic. Again, that first sentence sounds marvelous, right? It seems to be. It seems to promise the opening of a world of wonders, right? The Society of Magicians. Ooh. And then long, dull papers. <laughs> right? That's what they do. They read each other long, dull papers. Um, so there's magic. There was magic, but there isn't any more. And it's really boring. Right? The whole subject of magic. So, okay, so, so, so again... You know, if we just had that idea of, you know, if if uh, if, if we if we stuck with uh, Patrick's very uh, elegant expression, England had magic, we might just from that have some kind of sense of nostalgia, right? This sense of like, ah, oh, the lost English, but that's not the the sense that we're given here, right? I'm not saying that's not an element. The mere fact that English magic is a phrase, as I said, that's introduced in this first paragraph, I think is really important. Um, but but it's not being treated with sort of glamour, right? It's not this sort of sparkling, glittering, nostalgic thing. It's dull and tedious, and the history of English magic is obviously very run-of-the-mill. Um, uh, and that's... Um, uh, that's <laughs> Noam Weiss says, academic papers are long and dull? Yeah, well, it might just... Of course, it's a, it's a, a sort of a stab at that, of course. Um, but, um, uh, but, 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 yeah, exactly. Um, it created, yeah, we do learn that magicians don't use magic. Again, they read each other long, dull papers upon the history 
of English magic. So again, even before we get the second paragraph with the explicit um, uh, note, right, the explicit explanation that's really redundant of uh, that's 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 uh, uh, anyway, um, we 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 you know we're, so we're told that they that they don't do magic, but we already have it implied, right? What does the Society of Magicians get together to do? Talk tediously about the history of magic. Not about current magic. They don't get together to do magic. Um, yeah, now, James, I accept your uh, distinction that magic may not itself be boring, but that these guys manage to make it sound so. Agreed. Agreed. But, um, I, nevertheless, our own expectation, if our we were excited to wonder and anticipation in that first sentence, we, I think, will be quite disappointed um, at hearing that this doesn't, in fact, necessarily seem to be perhaps that kind of book after all. Um, and Mick, that's a great point. McNeil says that no evidence is really given that magic is real. Um, we find, because you're right, as we read on, we find that many of these magicians question much of it, right? Um, and we ourselves might be inclined to wonder, um, is this really just sort of a made-up thing? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, very good. Okay. Um, yeah, Sarah King says, maybe it's a characteristic of English magic, uh, it's just that it, that it, that it really is boring. Sarah, you know, you wonder, right? I mean, again, it's one of the questions that I find. It's not exactly in the category of something that we learn from that first paragraph, um, but it's something that uh, we're, you know, a question perhaps that we're left with, at least that I'm left with, is what does that phrase English magic mean? Um, Does it mean that, um, does it simply mean magic in England? But it doesn't seem like that, right? The history of English magic. Um, it could just mean magic that has happened in England, um, just like you would say, you know, the history of the English monarchy, for instance. Um, but notice the difference there, right? The English monarchy, right? It's the history of the monarchy, the monarchy of England, right? The syntax, could, but um, the history of English, English sounds like a qualifier, right? What magic? English magic. Well, what defines English magic, you know, and how is it different from continental magic, say? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, and then, of course, in the next paragraph, we get, uh, you know, the, the notice the gentlemen magicians, right? Notice how we have the uh, concept of gentlemen not only connected and associated with the idea of magician in the third sentence of the book, but hyphenated, right? The idea that there is a gentleman magician, kind of like a gentleman farmer, right? Except this is a gentleman magician, um, which suggests by the hyphenation, um, uh, she has suggested that this is in fact a subset of magicians, right? Some magicians are gentleman magicians, just as some farmers are gentleman farmers. Uh, but... Um, not all magicians are necessarily gentlemen magicians. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, of course, we can see sort of the uh, the the sort of ironic turn 
uh, in the end there, uh, at the end of that paragraph, you know. But with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. And again, you can see the uh, the the ironic twist in the end, you know, in the tone at the end of that paragraph. Notice the kind of distance that that places between us and them, right? We are sharing a joke with the narrator here, right? The narrator and we are recognizing <clears throat> that the gentlemen magicians of Yorkshire are somewhat absurd, right? That if they consider the fact that they don't know any magic and have never done any magic to be a minor reservation to their description as the wisest and most magical gentleman in Yorkshire, um, then it suggests that their own perspective on, on magic and on themselves uh, is perhaps rather silly. Uh, and I love how um, she accomplishes that. Um, good. Carita says, note that they are gentlemen magicians, not magical gentlemen. Yes, that's a different thing entirely, and we don't meet those right away. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay, so now uh, let's talk about books... Uh, books of magic. The first thing a student of magic learns is that there are books about magic and books of magic. The second thing he learns is that a perfectly respectable example of the former may be had for two or three guineas at a local bookseller, and that the value of the latter is above rubies. The collection of the York Society was reckoned very fine, almost remarkable. Among its many volumes were five works written between 1550 and 1700, and which might reasonably be claimed as books of magic, though one was no more than a couple of ragged pages. Books of magic are rare, and neither Mr. Segundus nor Mr. Honeyfoot had ever seen more than two or three in a private library. At Hertfew, all the walls were lined with bookshelves, and all the shelves were filled with books, and the books were all, or almost all, old books. Books of magic. The wonder of the library at Hertfew um, is, uh, uh, is uh, very, I think, elegantly um, uh, demonstrated here. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, uh, yes, Nancy, the name of Hertfew Abbey is um is is very wonderful and I agree um that many people I've heard many people compare Clark to Dickens. I honestly think I honestly think that the number one reason Susanna Clark's style is compared to Dickens is that Charles Dickens is one of the only 19th century authors that many modern readers have read. And so they compare her to Dickens, because she's like a 19th century uh, author. I find that there are sometimes Dickensian touches in what she does, but I f don't find her style very Dickensian um, as a rule. Um, but her names are... Uh, I find very often um, uh, Dickensian, uh, and Hertfew is uh, is definitely a um, a wonderful uh, sort of example there. Uh, Nancy Fosberg is particularly pointing to the sort of the wonderful echo between uh, the name of Hertfew and that second paragraph, right, where the magicians of the Society of uh, uh, in of magicians in Yorkshire um, ha they've hurt few or none with their magic because they can't do any of it, right? So we have uh, Hurt Few Abbey, um, which sort of plays off that, but of course Mr. Norrell uh, is, of course, not uh, 
not uh, the same. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one major question that this passage raised for me, uh, and it was a question that I found not answered to my satisfaction ever <laughs> in this book, uh, which is to me one of the really fascinating things, is, so wait, how does magic work exactly? Um, what is, again, what is English magic? Um, how, so how do you do magic precisely? What is it? How does it... We're not told. Um, We... And again, I love the fact that... um, I love the way that that gets kind of unrolled. First, she never just explains. We don't ever get any of the... Like like the passage describing the ball that I was just uh, talking... The the party that I was just uh, reading earlier... We don't get any parallel passage about magic and the doing of magic, right? You know, at, at no point do we get, um, and here's how, you know, the magical spells work. And this is how, you know, you know, never later in the story do we get like, and this is, you know, sort of the difference between a characteristic, you know, uh, um, strangeite uh, sort of spell usage and, and uh, Norlite spell usage. We don't, we don't get any of this, right? Why not? Well, we're in the same ignorance as this is the learned society of Yorkshire magicians at the beginning, right? They don't know how magic works, and neither do we. Um, it is a, the, the, the lack of information we get about magic, what it is and how it works, uh, strikes me as very directly parallel to the contemporary state of England, um, where they know about magic, right? They've heard about magic and things that are done by magic, but they don't know how it works. They don't know how to do it. Um, it's a complete mystery to them how magic happens. So um, that's um, that's I, I find that really cool. Again, to me, it's just another element of that contributes to uh, the absolutely remarkable effectiveness of this secondary world for me. Um, uh, you know, just another example of the thoroughness with which we are sort of immersed within it. I think it is really, really cool. Um, uh, Carita, exactly. Maybe if we read all those old books of magic, we would know how magic works. Yeah, and maybe the same could be said for the Learned Society of York Magicians, right? If they actually had access to Mr. Norrell's library, maybe maybe they would know a little bit more about it, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Oh, and David uh, Baxter, I agree with you that uh, I, I do find her style, her actual prose style, as well as her um, her sort of, uh, you know, ironic touch, much more like Austen than like Dickens. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, David, you're right that, you know, we never see magic sort of ordered and explained in a clear way. Um, you know, that it's not just like you say, David, it's not just like, a, you know, we don't get anything like a D&D source book. You're absolutely right. Um, but again, part of this seems to me the very lack of explanation seems to me almost part of the whole, like, again, what does it mean that it's English magic, right? Um, it's part of who 
these people are that they can do magic, it seems. But we'll come back to some of this later. We, I would, uh, you know, we're just sort of learning about things and being exposed to things here in the first uh, uh, in the first um, uh, chapter here. But uh, but so I've sort of talked about in a sense what's missing from this paragraph. But you see what we do learn, right? The very fact that books from the beginning here are associated with magic, and that books even seem to be sort of the conduit of magic, the the sort of um, uh, overstated description of, you know, the the very fine collection that the York Society has, um, which of course turns out to be a very, very poor selection uh, of books of magic. Um, uh, but anyway, the, 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 we see the correlation between the quality of their collection of magical books and the quality of their grasp on magic, right? Um, magic does seem clearly to be, we are introduced, we are, we are invited to see magic as a very bookish thing indeed, right? Um, and that it seems to have much to do with, where at least it seems to me very much invited to associate it with words, right? If there are things written in the books, which, so I mean, are these, are the books of magic rather than books about magic? A book of magic makes sense, does it read like a recipe book? Does it just give a list of spells? Is that what a book of magic is compared to a book about magic, which just discusses magic from a historical perspective or something like that? Um, again, those are, uh, to me, the, the, the questions which seem invited, um, uh, invited uh, that we're sort of invited to ask. Um, yes, yes, Josh, we won't talk about the most important book of English magic yet. Um, uh, nor for several months, but we'll get there because uh, that—that's I one of the what I find one of the coolest elements. Um, yeah, yeah, good. But anyway, we're we're yeah, several of you are jumping ahead. I'm going to resist jumping ahead. Um, but this is definitely how we're introduced to it, right? Again, magic sounds very, very bookish, um, and this is. Um, the, the, again, the, clearly the implication of these revelations about magic that we get here at the very beginning. And what about fairies? Um, what is the connection between magic and fairies, and, and uh, who are they, and how does that work? What kind of, in the context, you know, thinking about fairies in England, fairies in early 19th century England, we could be any number of places, right? Um, well, uh, so where are we? So here's what, this is of course a passage from one of the footnotes. Um, one of the uh, a- extracts that uh, Mr. Segundus reads uh, from Bellasis's book, um, yeah, Bellasis on Pale on Fairies. Um, so he's reading from one of the books here uh, about Martin Pale. The second extract concerned one of England's greatest magicians, Martin Pale. In Gregory, in Gregory Absalom's The Tree of Learning, there is a famous passage which relates how, while journeying through fairy, the last of the great Orient magicians, Martin Pale, paid a visit to a fairy prince. Like most of his race, the fairy had a great multitude of names, honorifics, titles, and pseudonyms, but usually he was known as Cold Henry. Cold Henry made a long and deferential speech to his guest. That The speech was full of metaphors and obscure allusions, but what Cold Henry seemed to be saying was that fairies were naturally wicked creatures who did not always know when they were going wrong. To this Martin Pale briefly and somewhat enigmatically replied that not all Englishmen have the same size feet. Um, can I say that Cold Henry strikes me as a very 
uh, English sort of nickname also. But anyway, um, what do we learn here? What do we learn? Tell me some things we learn from this passage. What do you see? What do you notice? Um, yeah, Karita, it does sound like it's ripped right out of real folklore. Um, it seems like even a a sort of lower class kind of nickname, right? That doesn't sound... Cold Henry, that's not something that... A, it's not a nickname a gentleman would give to a fairy, right? That's And that's, I, that seems pretty clearly marked right away. Um, what do we learn? What do we learn? Josh Bascom says, it's hard to get a, a grasp on the power balance between fairies and humans. Um, yes, yes. Um, the exchange between Martin Pale and Cold Henry, who we were introduced to as a fairy prince, right? So he's in fairy, paying a visit to a fairy prince, um, and uh, yet this does not it just does not seem very deferential. Like, who's in charge here? Um, uh, who's got a power over whom? Right? That that I agree is fairly unclear, right? Um, yeah, Cat, it does sound almost like a pirate name. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Lower class, right? Um, uh, pirates being distinctly lower class, uh, as a rule. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Um, more, more, again, what do we learn? Tell me, give, give, give me facts. What have we discovered from this, from this passage? Um... Good. Emily Metcalf says this, a trend of fairies and humans miscommunicating or operating on different planes. Yes, the very, um, the, 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 the disconnect between what Cold Henry says and what Martin Pale says um, is a good indication of sort of what to expect from fairy-human relations, right? And I think that's a really important thing. Um, uh, yeah, good. What else? What else? Good. Uh, Mick Neal says, uh, uh, Mick says, magicians get their magical knowledge from actual contact with magical beings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, hey, look, Martin Pale isn't reading this in a book. He's just wandering through fairy and talking to a fairy prince. Isn't that interesting? Um, good. Noam, yes, we get a clear connection between fairies and wickedness. Um, what the fairy says is that fairies are naturally wicked creatures who don't always know when they're going wrong. Um, yeah, Josh, uh, that they're morally ambiguous creatures, I think is an important thing. Because uh, Think about that statement a little bit. Um, fairies were naturally wicked creatures who did not always know when they were going wrong. Um, notice the sort of tension between the first and second half of that statement. That is, fairies are naturally wicked creatures. They don't know when they're going wrong, right? And the the key word there, at least the word that I would key on, is wrong, right? To say they're going wrong suggests that uh, being uh, natural, being wicked, is wrong, right? That's that's going wrong. They, they could go right and be virtuous, but instead they're going wrong and being wicked. But that's in conflict with the idea of them being naturally wicked creatures. If this is how they are, 
it's not a question of going wrong. It might be perhaps a question of being wrong in some sense, but not of going wrong. It's not like, well, you know, that fairy made some bad choices and he went down he went down the naughty path, right? Instead of the instead of the good, you know, the nice path. Um but the first half of the passage suggests that they that's what they do, right? They don't have a nice path. They just go down the naughty path. That's their path, right? That's the fairy path. Um so again, we see the whole thing framed from the perspective, it would seem, of Martin Pale, right? From from a fundamentally human perspective, which we can see, of course, earlier on, right? The, the speech is full of metaphors and obscure allusions. That is to say, Martin Pale didn't understand it, right? But what he got, what Cold Henry seemed to be saying, was that fairies were naturally wicked creatures, right? Um, so the whole thing is the human understanding of what Cold Henry was trying to express. But it's a limited human understanding. He didn't get it. Um, so that's his interpretation. So that's all from his um, point of view, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Janice Hopper was saying that going wrong is a human judgment, absolutely. Um, and no, um, yeah, do the fairies lack morality? Um, quite possibly. I get that's that would seem to be what uh, Martin Pale via Bellasis is saying. Because notice again how, with all of these footnotes, we again one of the senses that we get is this is the tradition that's been handed down, right? We don't know the authentic veracity of any of this stuff. This is this is what cold this is what Bellasis wrote that Martin Pale thought that the fairy meant, right, when he met him. Assuming that that story is actually true, right, and not just uh uh Bellasis uh, uh repeating something uh, uh you know some um, false story or fictional story. So anyway, um there's uh um it's 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 we see it sort of contextualized within human interpretation there, but again, that's the history of English magic, right? That's 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 a whole that's a, a, a central part of this whole world and this uncertainty of who and what are the fairies exactly. We're not sure, but we suspect they're bad, right? Is one of the things that I think we get from this, and it seems to match with what we hear. Uh, from other characters as we go through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Janice says that fairies live in a different world with different values. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I have to say, I find... Um, I find this... Um, a rather refreshing view of fairy, um, because it's very true to a lot of earlier traditions of fairy. It's it's you know medieval fairy stories. You see this kind of thing a lot, right? That that a they're just different from us. Um, there's something quite alien in their point of view, and that even when they're being nice, you know, even when they're being friendly. Um, uh, it might not translate into something that a human being would think of as friendly, right? And of course, this will become, uh, you know, one of the major subplots of the story. Um, but, uh, but yet, on top of that, um, the fact that 
they are at least as likely to do something which humans would call wicked. Uh, again, that's the uh, you know the sort of uh, uh, you know post Victorian, uh, especially post Disney world. Um, that concept of fairies has really kind of dropped out uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's, again, kind of, as I say, I find sort of refreshing uh, to think of them in that way. And I would also say, um, yeah, Tim Warman says this is very much the classic Irish fairy tradition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the traditional fairy stories um, are d- not cheerful. Right? They're not, the, and, and even in uh, even in you, you can read lots of references uh, to fairies and fairy magic uh, in uh, in elves in traditional nineteenth century literature. It's there, um, but whenever it is there, you're talking about changelings. You're talking about the main thing fairies are famous for um, is kidnapping babies, right? That's primarily what they're famous for. Um, so. Yeah, generally not uh, cheerful. You usually would not want to uh, uh, would not want to meet them. Um, yeah, they are Nancy kind of terrifying. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, there's so much that we could talk about about uh, Mr. Norrell's <clears throat> first instance of magic, but I love most of all the introduction to it. Upon the instant, bells began to toll. Now these were nothing more than the bells of of St. Michael Le Belfry tolling the half-hour, but inside the cathedral they had an odd far-away sound, like the bells of another country. It was not at all a cheerful sound. The gentlemen of the York Society knew very well how bells often went with magic, and in particular with the magic of those unearthly beings, fairies. They knew how, in the old days, silvery bells would often sound, just as some Englishman or Englishwoman of particular virtue or beauty was about to be stolen away by fairies, to live in strange ghostly lands forever. Even the Raven King, who was not a fairy, but an Englishman, had a somewhat regrettable habit of of abducting men and women, and taking them to live with him in his castle in the other lands. Now, had you and I the power to seize by magic any human being that took our fancy, and the power to keep that person by our side throughout all eternity, and had we all the world to choose from, then I dare say our choice might fall on someone a little more captivating than a member of the learned society of York magicians. But this comforting thought did not occur to the gentlemen of uh, the gentlemen inside York Cathedral, and several of them began to wonder how angry Dr. Foxcastle's letter had made Mr. Norrell, and they began to be seriously frightened. Yeah, Nancy, somewhat regrettable, uh, is uh, uh, is lovely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, uh, Janice. Yes, I know it's not just babies, and I say babies because that was the popular. Um, uh, that was sort of the 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 popular view, uh, dominant especially in the nineteenth century. That's what you always see references to in nineteenth century novels. Um, so I, that's why I mentioned you know, the idea of the fairy changeling. Um, which is almost always done in the cradle is uh, is is that's that, that that's why I mentioned that, um, but of course as we are introduced to here, um, it is uh, any human beings that takes their fancy, um, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, wonderful. Yes, the somewhat regrettable habit. Uh, yes, the uh, Raven King, and this is of course, I think the first reference to the Raven King. 
Um, if there's an earlier one, remind me of it, but I think this is the very first time we ever hear about the Raven King. Um, and the way that that's just dropped, right? Even the Raven King, who's not a fairy, but an Englishman. Oh, an English magician? Was he the Raven King? Um, uh, but we hear that he, A, abducts people like a fairy, and B, has a castle in fairy in the other lands. Um, again, the things that get sort of given to us, sort of handed to us about uh, about the Raven King here are pretty uh, are pretty remarkable. Yeah, Nancy, I agree. The Raven King seems not to be a gentleman magician. Certainly not. Um, okay, good. Thanks. James uh, Libak says in page 11, it mentions him among the great magicians. Great, thank you. So he, he exists in a list. Um, but, okay, good, good. Um, yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, notice, though, um, a, a thing which I find intriguing here, especially, and I find this especially noticeable on rereading this passage now for the second time, uh, coming back to it, having completed my first reading, the fact that when magic is about to happen, when magic begins to happen there in York for the first time, uh, first time anyway, in anybody's memory, um, these learned gentlemen from the York Society all associate that magic with fairy um, and fear lest they be being stolen uh, by fairies. That that's what that that the tolling of the bells. They fear lest the tolling of the bells foretells or forebodes their own abduction uh, into fairy. Um, but again, simply that the fact that that's where their mind goes, right? These learned men who at least have read a lot about magic, um, even if they don't really know all that much about it. Um, they um, uh, and Neil, you're right. We do see later in the book that it's a perfectly valid fear that they have of being of being. Though again, the sort of comfort that the narrator asks uh, offers them uh, is uh, perhaps cold comfort. Don't worry, the fairies wouldn't want you. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so but thinking of where we are here in the where we are here in the book, and and of course, as you can tell from the the sorts of discussions I'm trying to have about each of these passages, I actively don't want to think about this in the context of what happens later. We'll get to that later stuff. What I want to be doing is focusing on what we are given, what we have been given at this point. Because, of course, there are two different pleasures that we can get from reading the book, right? One is seeing how these things all fit together after the fact, and I want to be able to acknowledge that. Um, but going through, I like to, I prefer uh, to really prioritize the way in which the book itself unfolds. Because I think if we lose sight of that, then we can sort of miss out on a lot of the the really wonderful ways in which the author is acting, right? To be able to sort of see um, how, uh, you know, uh, sort of wherein the wonderful effectiveness of this book lies. I like to see, I like to see how it does it. Um, and it's real, and I find that it only increases my appreciation of it when I stop and look at those things. Um, so again, in general, I'm not going to be wanting to make Lots of connections forward. Um, well, we can carry on making 
vague and ominous references, but uh, um, but again, to me, the important thing is, and my own experience with being a new reader of this book is quite fresh in my mind. So, you know, coming to this chapter uh, for the first of this is what chapter three, I think, um, coming to this chapter for the first time, I, uh, you know, I don't know what English magic is, right? We don't know how magic works. Um, for all we know, and you know, there have been these connections with fairies. Um, you know, that we've already heard about, like with Martin Pale, the last Orient magician, who's, you know, traveling around in fairy, having casual conversations with fairy princes, um, given plebeian nicknames. I, you know, I, I, you know, we have every reason to suspect that perhaps English magic is intrinsically connected with fairy in some way. Maybe that's what makes it English magic, after all. Um, and it seems that the learned society of York magicians seems to be thinking in those general ways, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy, yes, the obtrusiveness of the narrator is something she says she noticed a lot this time through. Yes, notice the you and I, right? Now, had you and I the power to seize by magic any human being? Um, that conversational tone with the reader, um, <clears throat> that's, um, th- that is remarkable but again it's very 19th century right i mean that's uh um far less extreme for instance than how uh you know charlotte bronte carries on in jane eyre right um but but yeah that 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 narrator's voice is very present um yeah good good um excellent okay um let's uh let's uh Let's keep going. Um, with the Society of Magicians, we have, you know, the, uh, the noob comes in and asks the obvious question. Um, here in this, back at the very beginning, this is on the second page of the book, the question which um, probably has been in our minds since the second paragraph uh, is why, don't, if England has this, this rich history of English magic, what happened to it? How did England get to this state where now people just read long, dull papers about magic? Mr. Segundus wished to know, he said, why, ma- why modern magicians were unable to work the magic they wrote about. In short, he wished to know why there was no more magic done in England. It was the most commonplace question in the world. It was the question which, sooner or later, every child in the kingdom asks his governess or his schoolmaster or his parent. Yet the learned members of the York Society did not at all like hearing it, asked, and the reason was this. They were no more able to answer it than anyone else. Again, we have the ignorance and the rather ridiculous ignorance of the learned members of the York Society. Notice what we learn here, right? First, notice how dominant the tradition of English magic is, right? This is the number one way in which this 19th century English society that we're reading about differs from the historical 19th century English society is that magic doesn't only exist, it's part of the fabric of the culture, right? Every Sooner or later, every child in the kingdom asks his governess or his schoolmaster or his parent this question, right? It's just, it's just, it's, it's part of the intrinsic, it's the exactly, David, it's the most commonplace question in the world, right? Absolutely. Um, and that tells us a lot, Right? Again, that really brings us into this world of 
Everybody takes magic for granted. Everybody knows about magic. Magic is totally commonplace. The existence of magic is a totally commonplace thing. It is not a matter of wonder. But, but yet, it's also completely strange. So we have this, this sort of paradox in place, right? Where magic is run-of-the-mill, on the one hand, and yet completely alien at the same time, because it doesn't happen anymore. And nobody can explain, not even learned societies, can explain why that is or why that should be. Um, so what happens when Mr. Segundus, uh, uh, supported enthusiastically, as always, uh, by his very enthusiastic friend, Mr. Honeyfoot, whose name I love, too. Um, uh, that Mr. Honeyfoot's name would be associated with the sweetness of honey uh, is uh, is somewhat... Uh, is, is Again, Honeyfoot seems like a very Dickensian name. And not just the fact of it, but the way in which the name serves as a kind of a caricature of the character. Um, you know, he's, he is, his temperament is sweet as honey, um, but yet he also always seems to be putting his foot in his mouth. So, you know, he's, he's Mr. Honeyfoot, right? Um, uh, you know, there are other senses in which, you know, that, that, uh, his name could be, seem to be fitting, uh, to him. But, um, um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, exactly. John Moline says, what do you do with honey? You put it in your mouth, right? He's Mr. Honeyfoot. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, Mr. Norrell led the other two gentlemen al- along a passage. A very ordinary passage, thought Mr. Secundus, paneled and floored with well-polished oak and smelling of beeswax. Then there was a staircase, or perhaps only three or four steps, and then another passage, where the air was somewhat colder and the floor was good York stone, all entirely unremarkable unless the second passage had become had come before the staircase or steps, or had there in truth been a staircase at all. Mr. Segundus was one of those happy gentlemen who can always say whether they face north or south, east or west. It was not a talent he took any particular pride in. It was as natural to him as knowing that his head still stood upon his shoulders. But in Mr. Norrell's house his gift deserted him. He could never afterwards picture the sequence of passageways and rooms through which they had passed, nor quite decide how long they had taken to reach the library. And he could not tell the direction. It seemed to him as if Mr. Norrell had discovered some fifth point of the compass, not east, nor south, nor west, nor north, but somewhere quite different, and this was the direction in which he led them. Mr. Honeyfoot, on the other hand, did not appear to notice anything odd. The library was perhaps a little smaller than the drawing-room they had just quitted. There was a noble fire in the hearth, and all was comfort and quiet. Yet once again the light within the room did not seem to accord with the three tall twelve-paneled windows, so that once again Mr. Segundus was made uncomfortable by a persistent feeling that there ought to have been other candles in the room, other windows, or another fire, to account for the light." What windows there were looked out upon a wide expanse of dusky English rain, so that Mr. Segundus could not make out the view, nor guess where in the house they stood. What do we see here? What has happened here? What have we learned, again, from this passage? Um, Yeah, Neil says this is, of course, signs of uh, Mr. Norrell's labyrinth, his maze illusion. Yes, I will freely confess to you, I totally missed that. I didn't notice that at all. I mean, I, you know, read this passage, but I, I totally skipped over it. It didn't strike me. I was like, okay, so he's... Like, basically, what I was generally getting from this passage was that the house was large and rambling and confusing. I thought this was... 
either a satire on the peculiar architecture of Mr. Norrell's house or a satire upon the wits of Mr. Segundus or both, right? That's, that's what I got from the, fa- the passage the first time I read it. Of course, it, uh, it, <clears throat> it struck me very differently reading it for the second time after, of course, reading about the magical labyrinth to which much more attention is drawn uh, at the end of the book. But uh, um, <clears throat> but it's certainly it's 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 a very intriguingly done passage. We are being shown magic. This is the first time we see magic actually happen, and one not both but one of the two guys actually uh, actually catches on right or vaguely suspects, but he doesn't even have a category for what he's doing exactly. Cynthia only Mister Segundus recognizes it, except he doesn't exactly recognize it, right? He doesn't he can't he doesn't tell what he's he can tell that something is is strange, but he can't even recognize he doesn't know how to recognize that this is magic. Um uh and, so, and that's really interesting, right? Um it's um later on, Mr Segundus himself will have a category for this. Later on in the book, um Mr Segundus will be saying things like I can sense there's magic going on, right? He has that same sense now, but he doesn't know what it is. His ignorance about it is almost perfectly ignorant. Um, and so, uh, yes, the um, uh, the the you know, yeah, John Maline, you're right. This is a sort of a show don't tell about magical obfuscation. We see magic in action without even being told that it's magic. We're just sort of shown how it operates. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, Donna, exactly. Segundus does have a magical affinity. We do see that, but again, not even he understands that. Um, so, notice how in the early parts, notice how we as readers are in the same position as Mr. Segundus. If Mr. Segundus asks the most obvious question in the world that every child asks, well, we kind of might have been asking that too. What, why doesn't, if England, if there is a such thing as English magic, what happened to it, right? Um, so we, 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 we have a friend in Mr. Segundus, right? Well, again, we are parallel. We probably, by this time, are hoping to see some magic and wondering what magic would look like if it really happened, just as Mr. Segundus has come to this house seeking English magic, and yet when he actually experiences English magic at first hand, he doesn't even realize that it's happening, and neither necessarily do we. Uh, I'm sure many of you are much sharper readers than I was and weren't fooled for a second, but I was. I didn't get it. Totally missed it. Um, thought this was just Mr. Segundus getting confused. Uh, so, you know, that's... Uh, so there, there's me, just as ignorant as Mr. Segundus. Right? Um, yeah. Now, let's... Uh, I want to make sure we uh, talk about um, Mr. Norrell and Mr. Norrell's character and his goals and everything, because, of course, that's going to be really important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, good, Timothy, you're right. Timothy Fisher points out that, uh, again, the name, uh, the name Segundus uh, is another, another one of those sort of Dickensian names which sort of gives us a clue about the, the nature of the... Uh, of the character, right? Segundus uh, is uh, Mr. According to, uh, says uh, says Timothy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, it does give us a little hint about, uh, perhaps, about his destiny. Um, but let's look at Mr. Norrell. 
Consider, if you will, a man who sits in his library day after day, a small man of no particular personal attractions. His book is on the table before him, a fresh supply of pens, a knife to cut new nibs, ink, paper, notebooks, all as conveniently to hand. There is always a fire in the room. He cannot do without a fire. He feels the cold. The room changes with the season. He does not. Three tall windows open on a view of English countryside, which is tranquil in spring, cheerful in summer, melancholy in autumn, and gloomy in winter, just as English landscapes should be. But the changing seasons excite no interest in him. He scarcely raises his eyes from the pages of his book. He takes his exercise, as all gentlemen do. In dry weather, his long walk crosses the park and skirts a little wood. In wet weather, there is his short walk in the shrubbery. But he knows very little of shrubbery or park or wood. There is a book waiting for him upon the library table. His eyes fancy they still follow its lines of type. His head still runs upon its argument. His fingers itch to take it up again. He meets his neighbors twice or thrice a quarter. For this is England, where a man's neighbors will never suffer him to live entirely bereft of society, let him be as dry and sour-faced as he may. They pay him visits, leave their cards with his servants, invite him to dine or dance at assembly balls. Their intentions are largely charitable. They have a notion that it is bad for a man to be always alone. But they also have some curiosity to discover whether he had changed at all since they last saw him. He has not. He has nothing to say to them, and is considered the dullest man in Yorkshire. Yet within Mr. Norrell's dry little heart there was as lively an ambition to bring back magic to England as would have satisfied even Mr. Honeyfoot, and it was, the inten it was with the intention of bringing that ambition to a long-postponed fulfillment that Mr. Norrell now proposed to go to London. Um... Yeah, Josh, he's a gentleman magician, right? Good. We see we are have already had that class defined for us. So, what are the effects of this passage? How are we prompted to think about Norrell? This is the longest, most prolonged portrait about Norrell and what he's like that we get in the entire book, right? This is our real core introduction to who he is. And what do we get? Mister Norrell is nothing like those boring old people in the York society, right? No. No, actually, he's li just like them. In fact, he's exactly like them, except for the fact that he's less ignorant, right? He really knows what magic, and can actually do it. And does actually do it. Um, and, again, you get the impression that, remember, they don't like people asking the question about why modern magicians can't do magic, because they don't know the answer. But you kind of get, I mean... They disapprove of the whole idea of practical magic. But, of course, they can't do it. And that seems to be a... That seems, at least I feel, that we're invited to believe that that's a big reason... big part of the reason why they don't approve of that, right? Because they themselves can't do it. Um, so if they are restricted merely to studying it in old books, or, you know, like, kind of old books, um, then surely everybody else should be, too, right? Um... Good trip says he's less ignorant and less sociable. Absolutely, both both are true. Both are true, right? Um, they are a society. Um, he is completely solitary. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. John is uh, thinking about the name of his uh, his his manor, his house that can hurt few, right? Uh, cautious and tentative. Yes, yes. Focused and geeky, uh, says James Lebach. Yes, absolutely. Um, 
uh, yeah, the only reason he doesn't read boring papers to others is that he doesn't like others. Exactly. He just prefers to read them to himself. Um, though, well, I was going to say it doesn't seem that he writes papers, but of course it does seem that he writes papers. That is, we see the pens and notebooks and, uh, and uh, paper that he has ready to hand. Um, he does clearly write things down. Um, yeah, Sarah King, I agree. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a marvelously worded question you've uh, asked, Sarah. Isn't it, is it significant that Mr. Norrell's name isn't strange? Yes, his name isn't strange. Right. Um, that is, it's it's both literally in the sense that it isn't strange, but also that it isn't weird. Right. Um, Mr. Norrell sounds like a very normal gentleman. Right. Um, at least that's what I associated his name with from the beginning. Right. You know, his like his name practically is Mr. Normal. Right. He seems. Um, uh, you know, again, if you think about. Uh, Thinking of that 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 inversion of phrase that we were talking about before, right? Gentleman magician versus magical gentleman, right? If Mister Noro is a magical gentleman, where the others are mere gentleman magicians, he doesn't seem very magical. There doesn't even be much magical about him. You would never guess he was magical. Um, he looks, if anything, much much more boring, even than the people who read boring papers to each other. Um, yeah, uh, but you're right, John. They're notes to himself that he's making. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Trip thinks uh, he might have Baggins' blood in his family tree. Uh, it seems it seems uh, seems entirely possible. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Now we don't yet know necessarily that he's not sharing his knowledge, though. Again, it's implied by the fact that nobody knows about him, right? Um, Presumably, if he were writing and publishing things about magic, the learned uh, uh, society would know more about him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, 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 of course, focusing for a second on that last paragraph, within Mr. Norrell's dry little heart, there was as lively an ambition to bring back magic to England as would have satisfied even Mr. Honeyfoot. So... We are told, we are asked to believe that Mr. Norrell, boring, stay-at-home, dull Mr. Norrell, has this secret passion, right? A lively ambition to bring magic back to England. Okay. As, uh, as, as Hamfast Gamgee would say, it takes a lot of believing. Hamfast, by the way, uh, is exactly what, uh, what Mr. Norrell is. Um, his first name might actually be Gilbert, but I think it should be Hamfast. Uh, Hamfast, uh, Hamfast, uh, from the Anglo-Saxon means, uh, one who sticks to the home, um, uh, homebody, parochial. Uh, person is what hamfast means. Um, so uh, that's Mr. Norrell, right? You know, the guy who never wants to even leave his library. Uh, but anyhow, uh, as as uh, as as uh, again thinking about his lively ambition, um, it does certainly take a lot of believing. Um, but um, then, okay, when we when we actually hear him talking, he's not just dull, right? And Mr. Norrell is boring, but he's not just boring. He's also pretentious and offensive, right? Um, as, for instance, 
"'You expect a great deal of Bellasis,' remarked Norrell. "'And once upon a time I was entirely of your mind. "'I remember that for many months I devoted eight hours out of every twenty-four "'to studying his work, a compliment, I may say, "'that I have never paid any other author. "'But ultimately he is disappointing. "'He is mystical where he ought to be intelligible, "'and intelligible where he ought to be obscure. "'There are some things which have no business being put into books "'for all the world to read. "'For myself I no longer have any very great opinion of Bellasis.' "'Here is a book I have never even heard of, sir,' said Mr. Segundus. "'The Excellences of Christo-Judaic Magic. "'What can you tell me of this?' "'Ha!' cried Mr. Norrell. "'It dates from the seventeenth century, but I have no great opinion of it. "'Its author was a liar, a drunkard, an adulterer, and a rogue. "'I am glad he has been so completely forgot.' It seemed that it was not only live magicians which Mr. Norrell despised. "'He had taken the measure of all the dead ones, too, and found them wanting.' Um, yes, staid and haughty are both good adjectives for Mr. Neural Trip. I completely, I completely agree. Um, yeah, Josh Bascom says, I love that he does not seem to want to talk with or at them. Um, uh, that, that he does seem to want that. You expected him to be more tight-lipped. Um, yes, yeah, and Josh, notice how he, he, uh, speaks as if, there are times when he speaks as if he is, he assumes that they're less ignorant than they are, right? That that is, it's almost like Mister Norrell is so shut up in his own world that he literally doesn't even understand how ignorant other people are, right? You know, he has read so many of these books of magic, so many, so much more than anyone else, that he actually takes for granted things which they. Um, I mean, they've never even heard of most of these books before, and it's like, oh, of course, you expect a great deal of this. I, I understand, right? Um, no, that's not where he was coming from at all. Um, yeah, good. Emily Metcalf points out that Mr. Norrell certainly loves the word mystical as an insult. Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation, Emily. Um, that is, I think, very, very telling. Um, why? Why is mystical an insult to Mr. Norrell? What, what, why, does the, why does that seem to... Um, to offend him. Notice, he, he is mystical, where he ought to be intelligible, and intelligible, where he ought to be obscure. Not mystical, right? He doesn't say he ought to be mystical, he ought to be obscure. Um, you can understand him when you shouldn't be able to understand him. Um, and where you should be able to understand him, he is mystical instead. Um, yeah, well, see, Janice, yeah, he, theoretically, he knows perfectly well how ignorant they are. Yes, like, he has gone out of his way to ensure their ignorance. And yet, in his conversation, seems continually to betray the fact that he forgets how the other half lives, right? That he doesn't... He is not able to take himself out, imaginatively, out of his own world, and think like somebody else. Right to put himself in somebody else's position. Yes, he's made them ignorant, but he's forgotten what that's like. Right? Um, he does seem to take things for granted um, in that way. Good. Emily Metcalf adds that mystical implies that an explanation can never be found, whereas obscure just assumes the explanation is hidden. That's a good distinction, Emily. Um, he is mystical where he ought to be intelligible. That is, he 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 gives vague and, you know, sort of abstract explanations where he should just give clear explanations. And he gives clear explanations where he should conceal what he knows. Right? Um, and you're right, those are very, 
Those are very different things. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Patricia Minger is wondering, uh, you know, it's even more of a put-down that he seems to be emphasizing their ignorance. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think in this case, in this conversation, I think that that's certainly true. That he's really, in his act of apparent generosity to these two Yorkshire magicians, um, that is the generosity of showing them his library, he's actually mocking them all the time. Um, it's merely an expression of his disdain that he is doing this. And so, so yes, I do think that we see him um, sort of insulting them by sort of these references. And yet, um, yet again, I, I don't think that that's always necessarily the case with Mr. Norrell. Um, I think that he... Well, we, we'll see other evidences of this later on, but... Um, um, but, uh, but, but yeah, that, nevertheless, that idea of Mr. Norrell being ignorant about, not just how the other half lives, but how anybody else lives, right? Him, his inability to connect with people at all, um, is important, I think, because, wait a second... Is that kind of like fairies? Does that mean there is a connection between fairies and English magic? Therefore, um, does Mr. Norrell have, in a sense, something in common with fairies? Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll come back to this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, more, but more on his his intentions, on his uh, this. Uh, this passion that he has, his that uh, the desire that's burning in his dry little heart. Um, this is after he's in England and he's or in, he was in England the whole time. After he was in uh, London, and he's speaking with Mister Drawlight. Um, uh, and to what fortunate circumstance, sir? Asked Mister Drawlight. Another, again, of course, uh, delightful name. Um, because of course, notice how it's. Um, Mr. Drawlight uh, is an ambivalent name, right? Um, it, uh, it it could you know to 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 draw it could be drawing something to the light, right? Exposing something to the light. This is the character in which he uh, presents himself, right? He's bringing Mr. Norrell to light, uh, to the light of you know to, to light in, to light in the eyes of society, um, and yet draw also has another sense, right? Of taking away, right, of drawing to yourself. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, th that I think is um, uh, is a really cool uh, sort of uh, thing about his character. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, to what fortunate circumstance do we owe the happiness of your society? What brings you to London? I have come to London in order to further the cause of modern magic. I intend, sir, to bring back magic to Britain, answered Mr. Norrell gravely. I have a great deal to communicate to the great men of our age. There are many ways in which I may be of service to them. Mr. Drawlight murmured politely that he was sure of it. Right. Love that last sentence. Mr. Drawlight, who has been flattering him outrageously throughout this conversation, even... I should say, Mr. Drawlight, who has been flattering him outrageously, yet has this extremely understated murmur, which makes it quite clear to us as readers that Mr. Drawlight does not believe this. 
right? Um, that he clearly does not think thinks that Mr. Norrell is quite full of it. Um, uh, yeah, Nancy Fosberg says, I doubt very much that Drawlight paid attention through this entire speech. Uh, well, no, nobody can ever listen to Mr. Norrell speak that many sentences in a row, even though that's quite a short speech. But yet four sentences from Mr. Norrell? You know, most of us would be asleep by then. Um, uh, yeah, good. Uh, uh, James says, I like the way he talks of these great men of our age without any apparent knowledge of who they might be. Absolutely. Because he's completely ignorant. He doesn't know anything about society, right? So he's like, he trusts that there are, there, there must be great men out there, right? And whoever they are, he has much that he can offer them. He doesn't know what or to whom, but, uh, but doubtless, doubtless, he's able to, as the great modern magician and the one who's going to bring back modern magic. Uh, but, but again, notice the transition there, right? Why? Why does he want to further the cause of modern magic? What does that mean? It means furthering himself, right? I may be of service to them, but but he's still talking about serving, right? Um, there's great good that he can do, you know, for the great men of our... Presumably not just to flatter the great men of the age, right? There's There, there are great services that he can render. Um, and yet he's uh, he's thinking about... His, his immediate thought is classing himself with, sort of associating himself with the great men of our age, with those capital letters. Um, but you're right, Kat, he does also see it as a patriotic service to his country. Um, so even though he does say, John, as you point out, modern magic, not English magic, yet it's still clearly um, uh, sort of emphatically English for him, because I mean, he's, he's, he is, as he expresses himself later on, very patriotic. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good trip. Uh, no, none of his books had a list of contemporary great men of England. Of course not, because he reads all old books, right? So what does he know about uh, about the contemporary conditions? Um, but notice again, thinking of what well, what do we learn here? You know, in this uh, in this passage, notice we learn not only something about Norrell and about how he thinks of himself and what he thinks about modern magic and why it is that he wants to bring it back, but we also um, see something about what society thinks or is likely to think um, about um, about magic, right? Um, even Mr. Drawlight, who is very enthusiastic about Mr. Norrell and his, uh, and his magic and wants to associate himself with it, um, is nevertheless plainly skeptical about the actual power that Mr. Norrell is likely to have. Um, Mrs. Pleasance, the uh, uh, the the one in who's the housekeeper, uh, Mr. Segundus's housekeeper, um, is uh, clearly has the has the clearest view of Mr. Norrell of anybody else. Right? She's never met him. Uh, she's um, only heard about him from Mr. Segundus, and yet she sees right to the heart of the matter. And her description of Mr. Norrell, I think, is the most accurate we get in the entire book. Uh, Mr. Segundus had not told Mr. Mrs. Pleasance that Mr. Norrell was old, and yet she fancied that he must be. From what Mr. Segundus had told her, she thought of him as a sort of miser who hoarded magic instead of gold. And as our narrative progresses, I will allow the reader to judge the justice of this portrait of Mr. Norrell's character. Like Mrs. Pleasance, I always fancy that misers are old. I cannot tell why this should be, since I am sure that there are as many young misers as old. As to whether or not Mr. Norrell was in fact old, he was the sort of man who had been old at seventeen. Mrs. Pleasance continued, 
When Mr. Pleasants was alive, he used to say that no one in York, man or woman, could bake a loaf to rival mine, and other people would have been kind enough to say that have been kind enough to say that they never in their lives tasted bread so good. But I have always kept a good table for love of doing a thing well, and if one of those queer spirits from the Arabian fables came out of this very teapot now and gave me three wishes, I hope I would not be so ill-natured as to try to stop other folk from baking bread. And should their bread be as good as mine, then I do not see that it hurts me, but rather is so much the better for them. Um, Mrs. Pleasance has the most sort of delightful perspective on both, you know, sort of into the into the nature of Mr. Norrell's character and into exactly what his faults are. I get, this is more clearly expressed than by anyone anywhere else, I think, in the book. Um, it is certainly my judgment that uh, uh, her portrait is very just indeed. Um, that he, a miser is clearly what he's a miser of books, as we see very clearly already. Um, but that he is a miser of magic is the thing which she perceives and which seems in the moment, right? This, is, this conversation is happening on the morning of the day in which Mr. Norrell makes the stones of York Cathedral speak. Um, so when the day in which modern magic returns, in which English magic begins its, its, its restoration, um, you know, from, thanks to Mr. Norrell, in the day in which it would seem that Mr. Norrell is acting unmiserly and revealing magic to the world, this is the moment at which Mrs. Pleasance makes this observation about him, and it's I, I find that observation sort of the more keen for that because it's um, it's uh, uh, it seems to be you know one could argue oh it's immediately contradicted right I see he's not a miser he's and then we see oh look he has a passion to go to London and share with everybody how marvelous right how wonderful how delightful of Mr. Norrell see he's not a miser at all he's going to share with one and all and yet we'll see no actually that is kind of exactly what he's like and her um, discussion of the bread um, uh, is a wonderful illustration of what exactly is wrong with his miserliness, right? Um, <clears throat> is it just now Mrs. Pleasance implies from her description here, um, again from her parallel with the bread, um, implies that what is motivating him to hoard magic as, uh, as, a, as misers hoard gold is the desire to be seen as the best and only magician in England, right? Um, so just she says it would be as if she, as an excellent bread baker, um, could uh, keep anybody else from making bread because she didn't want anybody's bread to rival hers. And she says, well, if other people make better bread than mine, it doesn't reduce how good mine is. Um, it's it's the better for them, but it doesn't hurt me, right? Um and that seems to be, of course, an outlook very antithetical to Mr. Norrell's outlook on magic. It's, it would appear that he would find himself quite reduced uh, if somebody else did magic. At least, again, this is what we're getting several people, um, uh, Karita and Michael Cheskovsky, are thinking about uh, uh, Melkor 
in reference to the discussions we've been having in the Silmarillion film project uh, about Melkor. Yeah, I have to admit I've been thinking about that too here. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, of course, Sarah, exactly, Sarah Lagarde points to that fundamental irony, right, that while on the one hand he seems to be giving magic back to England, um, through that act of magic, he's denying the study of magic to all the York magical gentlemen, right, or gentlemen magicians. Um, exactly, exactly, right. So again, it, it has the appearance of generosity, of openness, right, I shall reveal magic to all, but it is that act which seals magic and makes it exclusively his own, and also possibly to some extent uh, 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 John Segundus, of course, who gets exempted uh, from, or at least permitted not to sign the thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, starting to run out of time here. Um, I had a couple more passages that I wanted to talk about, about uh, the reception of magic in London. But I think we can save that for next time. We'll look, uh, we'll, we'll spend much more time with Mr. Norrell's London career uh, next time. Um, so uh, let me, uh, oh, hang on a second. I want to make sure I don't, uh, I don't mess up my, uh, my assignment for next. I was about to remind you of the reading for next time, but if I uh, leave myself to myself, I'm likely to make a mistake. So hang on, let me double check, make sure I know my own reading assignment for next time, because that would be embarrassing uh, if I screwed that up. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so through chapter 13, that's right. So we're going to read chapter 7 through 13, um, uh, and uh, so that, that what we'll discuss next week, that's next Wednesday. Don't forget that this coming Tuesday, is our uh, is our, our our launch event uh, for our fall fundraiser, uh, and where we'll be explaining all of our events and our our flash fiction contest and all the other fun things that are going on. Um, so do join me next Tuesday night. Um, I also have uh, for those of you who have been following my uh, my adventures in Lotro and the Lotro stream that I'm doing on Friday afternoons. Uh, uh, you can see. Uh, Grifflet hopefully make it all the way to the Red Maid uh, this week. So that's happening as usual at 12.30 on Friday afternoon Eastern Time. Thanks everybody for joining me, and uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next time. Thanks for a wonderful discussion tonight, and I will see you next week. Good night, everybody!